At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Um, summer vacation time, I don't know if you've noticed. How many of you are, have either taken or are going to take some sort of vacation this summer? Maybe even if it's a short day too. Okay, mo- most of you in the room have plans, that's good. Now my second question is, what kind of vacation preparer are you? When it comes to your vacation, are you like one of those vacation preparers? You've had this on the calendar for six months. You know exactly where we're going. You've got your itinerary planned out. You know what you're packing. You're all lined up. You're like, you've been working on this for a while. Or are you a vacation preparer like me who wakes up the day of vacation and hope that my wife has everything prepared for what we're about to do? And maybe I can just throw some clothes in a suitcase. So she's laughing because she knows it's true. Um, sadly. I'm getting better, right? Getting better? Maybe not. Anyway, right? But what I've noticed is any time that you're preparing to go to a new destination, it requires your preparation. Several months ago, we got the opportunity, Alicia and I, to, with her parents, travel to, uh, to Italy because of their generosity and spend a week there. But one of the things I recognized in traveling all the way to Italy is that takes significant amount of preparation, Right? I'd be like, okay, like, how do I plug my phone in there? I don't even know. I guess they have different plugs. Now I've got to buy those. What's that on Amazon? I'm going to be walking a lot, so we've got to get different shoes. What clothes am I going to pack? They've got to be light enough, so I don't want to pack my suitcase. don't want to pack too much, too little. What's the itinerary? What are we going to, like, you have all the preparation that goes in just to spend a week. But anytime you're going to a different, different destination, it requires your proper preparation. Today, we're wrapping up the series that we've called All Things New, where we've been looking at the last four verses of the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John receives a revelation that he records in this book of what God is going to do at the end of all things. When Jesus returns to uh, defeat his enemies, to put an end to Satan's sin and death, and to establish the new heavens and new earth, God's kingdom forever. And as he draws his revelation to a conclusion, John has been painting an incredible picture for the destination that is ahead for those are in Jesus, who are in Jesus. That God really is going to make all things new. That he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. That he's going to remove death. That he's going to bring the new Jerusalem, this glorious city, as we saw last week, that outshines any earthly city we can think of. John's just been trying to capture our imaginations and our hearts with this incredible vision of what the destination is going to be at the end of all things for those who are in Christ. That there, in that day, we will experience the promises of God ultimately fulfilled, and we will dwell with him forever. But in light of the destination that John has been envisioning, I think it naturally brings up the question of preparation. How do we actually now begin to prepare for the destination that is to come? But the reality is, all of us, no matter what your worldview is, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, everyone lives right now informed by what they ultimately believe the destination of life to be, what will come at the end. Whatever you think that is, it informs how you prepare now. 
the question that I think we should ask is to say, if what John, and we believe, what John has been painting up for us, if our destination is this new home, this new earth that God is preparing for us, how does that actually inform some of the way and much of the way that we live now? How do we prepare now for the destination that is to come? Well, that's what we're going to look at in this last section of the book of Revelation, because as he draws his letter to a conclusion, John wants us to be prepared to live now for what's to come. And his whole thing that he's going to help us encourage, or he's going to encourage us today is to really think through what does it mean to live in anticipation of Christ's return? What, what does it mean to live in anticipation of Christ's return? Look at, look at how John closes this letter. Verse 6 of Revelation 22, he says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. John is just wrapped up concluding this picture of this beautiful eternal city that is the new Jerusalem. It's meant to capture our imaginations with all that God will do in the end and what he will lead us to. But now in verse 6, he begins to draw from that towards to kind of his conclusion of the letter. And part of the way we know it's the conclusion of the letter is because he begins to actually use very specific repetitive phrases that he used in the first three verses of John, of the letter of, of Revelation. If you went back and read the first three verses, you would see that he's repeating. So he begins to draw his conclusion. And as he does that, the first place he draws his attention and reminder to his audience is to say, this revelation that I've been recording Recording. These things that you are searing, that you've been hearing from this angel, these are trustworthy and true. They're faithful and reliable, what is recorded for you in this vision. Not only that, these are God's very words. He, he draws this connection between God of the spirit of the prophets, which is a reminder that God has chosen to speak by his prophets to reveal his word to his people. John's trying to say, this isn't stuff I've just been making up, but God has actually revealed this to me, the same God who revealed through the spirit, through this angel, ultimately to show you what must soon take place. He wants us to know what is coming. Why? Well, because that end informs the way we live now. And the next phrase that John uses gives us that invitation and motivation for our preparation now. He says, now he quotes from Jesus specifically, and says, and behold, I am coming soon. Here John introduces us to his key phrase. He's going to repeat this phrase three specific times in his last paragraphs of this letter. And it's key because in it, John is both drawing our attention to what to look for, but also giving our motivation for what he's going to call us to. That phrase that Jesus is coming soon really brings two realities into focus. The first thing that it brings into focus is the return of Christ, which is what will signal the end of all things. That the next work that God is going to accomplish in his work of salvation history is the return of Christ. That's what Jesus signaled. That's what the apostles signal. That's what John reminds us here. Jesus is coming soon. And this is what we're to look for and anticipate. 
But the second thing that phrase does is it reminds us that his return is imminent, meaning we don't know the day or the hour. So we should live with an expectation that Jesus can return at any moment to signify and bring an end to all things and move into the final phrase of God's work of redemption. Part of that imminency is meant to be a motivation. It's meant to remind us, even by this call, behold, I am coming soon, to say, how are you preparing now for when I show up and I bring about all these things that I've been envisioning for you in this book? So even in this, Jesus, via John, is inviting us to consider how do we live in light of his coming? How do we live in light of the end of what is ultimately to happen? And I think there's three things that he'll consider for how we can prepare now for what ultimately is to come. We see the first one come right away there in verse 7. He says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That word blessed, it's the idea of God's favor, what God announces his favor upon. It's used multiple times through the book, but here we specifically see in light of Jesus' coming that those whose God's favor is upon is those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. What does that, that mean? Well, that idea of keep is the idea of to persist in observance of or pay attention to, to remain obedient to. Essentially what he's saying is, blessed is the one who sees what this vision is entailing and also the call and command of it and who then lives or aligns his life with that who seeks to actually live in line with God's word. John continues. He he continues to help us see this is reliable what I'm sharing with you. He says in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. So John says, hey, listen, I I'm I'm bearing witness. I'm trying to give you, I saw this. I witnessed it, right? Like he's trying to give you his validation of what he's seen. But then he gives this interesting encounter with this angel. He falls down to worship and look how the angel responds. Verse nine, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Now, this is an odd thing. Essentially, John's like, hey, keep God's word. But then he records this weird encounter with an angel. It seems to come out of nowhere. But actually, I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's true and brilliant because in this interaction that we have with John, it actually emphasizes the very call that he has to keep his word. Because I think there's four things that you see even in this little interaction that helps put the focus in keeping God's word. First, it highlights the gloriousness, I'm sorry, the glorious nature of the revelation of God's word. I mean, think what he's saying here, right? That God has spoken through his angels to John, who's likened as a prophet in the way God speaks to record the revelation for God's people. Like what he's trying to shout to you is, hey, this isn't man-made. Like I didn't make this up. There's not some ulterior thing here. God spoke by his angels to me to record this for you. It reinforces this supernatural reality and importance of God's word. That God does speak by his spirit, through his prophets, at times through angels, for the benefit of his people. This not only is the book of Revelation, but all of God's word is this. It is God's gracious revealing of himself, his plans, his purposes to edify his people. 
So it reminds us of the glorious nature of the revelation. Second, the interaction actually reminds us also, though, of the ordinary nature of John. What's fascinating is this is actually a repeat of what John did earlier. If you remember all the way back in Revelation 19 in the first message we started where God comes and he announces, the angel announces, blessed are those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. John does the exact same thing. He falls down and worships the angel and the angel rebukes him and says, no, don't do that. That's, I am not the one to be worshipped. I'm just a fellow messenger like you. John now gets to the end of the thing, and he does the same thing. And you're like, John, like, didn't you get it the first time? But I think that's actually the point. Because the point of God's word is not a a human or a man. Human beings are fallen and fall. Even the apostles of Jesus, who recorded one of the most magnificent revelations in history, still doesn't get it right. And in some ways, I think he's trying to say, the focus isn't John, the focus is the word, it's the vision, it's the revelation that God is giving by his word. We must always be careful of putting our eyes on fallen human beings and not fixing our eyes first on Christ, but also his word. Third, I think it reminds us of the point of everything, right? How does the, he respond, I'm just a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. What does it mean to keep the words of this book? Worship God. That's the point. That's the point of everything. That's the point of the whole book of Revelation. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship the false prophet. Don't worship what is less. Worship God. He alone is worthy of your life and your worship for the spectacular reality of who he is and what he's done by Christ and what he will do. My New Testament professor, Dr. Osborne, says this in his commentary, and I love this. He says this, this idea of worship God is the basic message of the whole book. There is only one worthy of worship, not the emperor or the antichrist or the angels, but God alone. Eternity will be typified by the unadulterated and direct worship of God. As the Westminster Confession has said, human beings were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The whole point of we keeping the words is a way in which we worship God. We don't just worship God with our lips when we sing. We we do that, but we also are to worship God with our lives by how we live, how we live in obedience to the revelation that he's given us. And finally, again, I think it puts an emphasis, an emphasis on the importance of the word of God. Not only by reminding us about those who keep it, but look what he says in the next phrase, verse 10. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now this is an interesting phrase, because this is actually almost a direct contrast to an earlier statement that God gave to another prophet who he gave visions of what would happen at the end to. That prophet was the prophet Daniel. And at the end of Daniel's revelations from God, God actually comes to Daniel in Daniel 12, verse 9, and he says, seal up the words of this, because the time is not yet. But here, after God gives his revelation to John, he says, don't seal up these words, because the time is near. The next event to come is the final end of all things. And I want people to be prepared. I want them to see what's coming, so it will help them to align their lives now. This reminds us that God's word is central to how we live now to prepare for what ultimately is to come. Maybe think of it like this. So I have reached a, uh, a glorious uh, m- moment in uh, my parental life. 
it's been a little, little bit now, but, but I reached it, which is I am able to leave my kids home by themselves. The, the young parents, you get there, don't worry, it comes, I swear. And if you're single, we're all jealous of you that you live this way all the time, right? But like it's, it's that reality, I've reached that. And sometimes when I leave, I, I have to give my kids instructions for when I'm gone for the house, right? So like imagine with me, my wife and I are gonna go out on a date one night and uh, I come to my kids and I say, hey, guys, listen, I'm going to leave you home alone, but tomorrow we have some friends coming over and we want to have the house ready for them, so while I'm gone, I have a few things that I've written out that I would, I would like you to do, right? So I need you to clean up the kitchen a little bit, make sure there's nothing in the living room, wipe down the toilet, you know, whatever I got to give them to do that I don't want to do. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I give them this list. Now, now, when I leave with my wife, right, what should be the priority for them? Should it be their Xbox or their phones or their friends? No. What should be important is the words that I gave them and the instructions. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to come back, and at that point, there's going to be a reckoning. In some ways, that's what John's trying to say. Listen, there's an end coming. God's trying to prepare you for what's going to come. Therefore, what you need to prioritize are his words and instructions now. Make that the focal point because that's actually what's going to prepare you for the kingdom to come. I mean, John has been laboring throughout the book and throughout the vision that he's received to help you see, listen, at the end of all things, Jesus is going to defeat all his enemies. The beast that stands against him, the power and empires of our world, even Satan himself, he's going to put an end to. And what's going to be forever and ever is his kingdom. So start living now in preparation for that. And the way you do that is by making the words he's given you in the meantime the focus of your life because that becomes the barometer for how you should live. And his whole point here is to invite you to say, if you're not doing that, do that. that that's why he says this kind of strong statement. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. He, he's not saying that as like, well, what will be will be, right? So if you're on the wrong side, just stay that way. Like, he's trying to get you to see, listen, when this comes, where are you going to be at? Are you going to be on the side of evil? Or are you going to be on the side of the kingdom? Are you going to follow Team Dragon? Or are you going to follow the lamb that was slain? Where, where are you going to align the actual reality of your life? Will you keep God's word? And I think one of the things that the book of Revelation does time and time again, and why it's so important, is it is a book that forces us to ask the question that I think every Christian must ask. What does it mean to live out God's word in my day and my culture? Because what Revelation is trying to tell you is that Babylon is behind every worldly kingdom and culture, ours included. No exceptions. The only place where Jesus fully reigns is over his church until he returns. So the question the Christian must ask is, how is Babylon trying to infiltrate me from keeping God's word? And how do I instead align with his kingdom? Listen, Christians should be the most proficient cultural critics we have. Because 
we recognize that our culture does not fully imbibe the values of the kingdom. And if we're to keep his word, then we must constantly be culturally asking the question, is this leading me towards the way of Jesus or away from the way of Jesus? Is this aligned with what he says? And is this preparing me for his kingdom? Or is it preparing me for his rejection? To keep his word is to align our lives with his kingdom and his values, which will reign for eternity. And so he invites us to say, you want to prepare now for what's to come? Keep his word. But even in that, we recognize the tension because all of us fail to some extent to keep God's word. So what happens when that happens? Well, the second part becomes vitally important to how we prepare as well. Look at verse 12. Again, he repeats the refrain, Behold, I am coming soon. But he even heightens that reality with his next phrase, right? Bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here we encounter one of the major themes of the book of Revelation, that when Jesus comes, when he returns to establish God's kingdom finally, what he will bring with him is his justice. That he will deal with sin. He will deal with his enemies. And he will remove them from the earth to establish the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. And those who are not on team lamb will be removed, along with the dragon and the false prophet and the beast of Babylon. And so Jesus reminds us, behold, I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing my recompense. I'm bringing my judgment to repay everyone for what they have done. And, and all of us, for a moment, should feel a trepidation. To feel, whoa, whoa, if Jesus is coming to look at what I've done, like, ugh. And just to emphasize that he knows what you've done, he reminds you of his sovereignty. I am the alpha and the omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is trying to tell you, I was there at the start, I'm there at the end. There's nothing in your life hidden from my eyes. What makes Jesus the only one able to defeat evil is that he's righteous enough to judge it and powerful enough to deal with it. He is fully sovereign, which should, again, naturally cause some trepidation for us. But that's why John quickly moves to the good news. And he says, blessed, verse 14, are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So John says, not only do we prepare by keeping his word, but we need to prepare by washing our robes. Well, what does that mean? Well, this phrase actually comes earlier in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you go all the way back to chapter 7, you'll see this. I'll put it on the screen for you. In verse 14, this phrase is used earlier. It says, And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So we see that that to wash your robes is to identify with team Jesus. It's to trust him and experiencing by him a cleansing from your sin. 
right? This is what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. All of us are stained with sin. From the moment we are conceived, we are stained with sin and therefore cannot enjoy the eternal reality of God's presence forever. But the truth and good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to deal with our sin. That although our sin required our death and our eternal separation, Jesus came and died in our place so that when we put our faith in him, he receives the death we deserve and we receive his life so that we can experience God's presence forever. And then he rose from the dead to verify and show death and sin have no power over me and they have no power over those who are in me. When you trust in Jesus, you are cleansed from your sin. That's the invitation to wash your robes. I mean, have you ever had a stain in your shirt that you like just cannot get out? Right? I remember before I learned the, really learned how to do laundry well, um, you know, I would just have clothes that just had these stains that I felt like, I'm like, I keep washing them. Like I keep putting them in the washer and I feel like, it never gets clean. Like there's still this, especially it's always grease. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how, but it always gets there. And I just like cycle and cycle and cycle and cycle. Until like one day my wife was like, hey, why don't you just put like a little less oil on that? That'll actually help get it out. Oh my goodness. I had like new clothes. I was like, oh, right? Be- because when you find the right antidote for the stain, you- you- it actually can deal with it. Right? So get your Dawn or your OxyClean or whatever you use to help get those stains out. The, the reality of our lives is there is only one thing that can remove the stain of sin on our life. It is the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf and us putting our faith in him. It's, that's what it means to wash ourselves, in the, in, wash our robes in his blood is to be cleansed from sin. It's a trust in him. It's the only thing. It's the only eternal stain remover. The problem is, you and I, we try to keep getting rid of this stain of sin in our own power. And it's just like cycling your clothes through the washer without finding the right thing to remove the stain. Because the truth is, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you give to charity, no matter how many right things you do, no matter how many things in your life you think will somehow equal out getting rid of that stain, that stain is still there. And we all walk around pretending like it's not, but we know deep in our souls it is. And I'm here to tell you, the only thing that can remove the stain from your soul is the death of Jesus Christ. So wash yourself in him. And when you do, you will experience an eternal cleansing, not based on your works, but based on his work for you. And you can live free and cleansed from the stain of sin. And not only that, when he comes in his kingdom to bring his recompense, he will not see you in your sin. He will see you clean and he will invite you to enjoy his eternity forever. That's why he says those who've been washed in the robes, what do they get? Man, they get access to the tree of life. They get eternal life with God forever and ever and ever to never experience the second death. They get to enter his city and be in his presence forever. But what happens when you don't do that? When you don't wash your robes? Well, he's clear. Then you're outside the city. And he uses the term dogs. That's where dogs are. They would have been. They were animals that were to be rejected in their culture. They didn't welcome dogs into their home. They weren't clean. They were unclean in his day. And what he's trying to say is, if you don't wash your robes, you're still in your sin. That's why he uses these broad categories of sin. Sorcerer, sexual immorality, morals. He's trying to get you to see, hey, if you don't wash your robes, your stain's still there. And if your stain's still there, you don't get to go in the city. You're left on the outside of the city. I mean, have you ever been left out of a good party? It's the worst. 
When everybody else is like experiencing the joy and you're just like, oh man, I didn't get the invitation. What John's trying to say is like, you have the invitation, but you've got to receive it. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you experienced that cleansing power of what it means to know his forgiveness and his love? That's ultimately John's desire for us. Wash your robes. Enter the city. Enjoy the eternal party in the presence of God. And John's hope is not only that we receive this invitation, but that we also become extensions of it as well. That's why he closes this letter, I think, by focusing on this invitation that he has. Look what he says in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. These phrases are meant to remind you that he is the Messiah. He is the saving king. That's his identity. The one promised from David's throne that would come to establish God's kingdom. The bright and morning star who brings God's light. That's who he is. And in light of that, then, he extends this invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, in light of Jesus' saving work, the invitation says, then come to him. Come and receive the water that will quench the thirst of your soul. Jesus says, I have water for you that if you drink of me, you will never be thirsty again. Right? You have longings in your heart that only Jesus can satisfy. And the invitation for you is to come to know his grace, to come to know his love, to come to know his eternal purposes for you those things your heart beat for, even the world that your heart beats for is here. It's made available in Christ, and the invitation is for you to begun to experience it. And I love the beautiful build in this phrase, because I think it's both an invitation for us to receive, but it's a reminder that it's an invitation for us to extend, right? In light of Jesus as a saving king, the call comes from first the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God sent out into the world, to convict of sin and call people to Christ. We merely follow the Spirit's lead in our mission. But as we do that, he amplifies the next set of voices, which is the bride, the church, that they join with the Spirit to extend and say, come, come to know Jesus, come to experience this. And those who hear it and receive it also lend their voices to say, come, so that the extension of the invitation goes further and further, so more and more people have the opportunity. And then John, pulling from the prophet Isaiah invites us to that great experience of living water. I think it is the invitation to come that is the cry of heaven. It's the invitation of revelation to say, come, you want to prepare? Come to the Lord. Because as you come to him, you will begin to experience a love and a forgiveness that you will spend eternity enjoying. Eternity. That the vision of revelation is there will not be for those that enter into the city a day where you will be exhausted in discovering the joy and satisfaction of what it means to be in God's presence. I don't think anybody captures that invitation better probably than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in his last book, The Last Battle, he tells the story of the four kids who returned to Narnia for the last time. But in this book, they get the opportunity to actually go into the new heavens and new earth. You find, I, I won't ruin it for you, but they get the experience. Go read it. It's great. And as Lewis, in his kind of imaginative way, paints the pictures of what this new heaven and new earth, it feels more real than it could. More, 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 there's something to it that cannot be explained. 
But repeatedly throughout the final chapters, he continues to call for an invitation. And I think it beautifully parallels the invitation of Revelation. It's captured really well by one of the unicorns in the book. She writes this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Do you hear the invitation? Every glimpse of goodness that you get in this world is only a signpost of the greater goodness that is to come in the new heaven and the new earth. Every moment of joy you find now is meant to point you to the greater reality of what life will be like when sin is removed and God has fully established his kingdom on the earth. And the invitation then is to come further up and in to come and experience more and more and more and more of it. I mean, we begin to do that journey now as we follow Christ, but the invitation and reality is that we will spend eternity, that you will always have an up and in to go because you will never exhaust God. You will never get to the end and be like, well, reach the end of God. Guess I got to find something new to satisfy my soul. No, the joy of eternal creation with him is that you will experience that joy forever. And I think that's why John ends, that reality, I think that's why he ends right here with he does, with the way he does. First, with the warning, and then with an invitation. He essentially gives a warning to say, hey, don't let anybody add to this book, or don't let anybody take away with it. Don't mess with God's word, because this is what's meant to motivate and animate and inform the way you live now and help you see what is to come. But then he reminds us of that phrase from the get-go. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. And look at John's response. Come, Lord Jesus. See, I think what John gives us right there is the heart. The heart of what it means to live in anticipation of Christ's return. That those who seek to prepare now for what is to come that their hearts will cry from the depth, Jesus, won't you come? If you're coming, come. I cannot wait to be with you. The cry of the heart and captured by the vision of revelation is to be homesick for our eternal home to come. I remember um, a while back, uh, we had some, um, uh, some friends of our boys stay with us for uh, the weekend while their parents were um, away. And at the beginning of the weekend, it started off with fun and activities, and we were doing all sorts of things. But progressively, as the weekend transpired, one of the kids just began to get more and more homesick for his mom. And he would ask to call her, and he talked to her, and, and just kept getting kind of sadder and more distraught and more disdained. And, you know, you try to distract them, you try to comfort them. I'll be honest, at some point it probably just turned to annoyance for me of like, can we just come on? Like, let's just have some fun, right? Like, I know that's my own issue. But I realized that like no matter what I could do for him, there was nothing that could satisfy like the presence of his mom. There was nothing that could offer him the peace and the comfort and the love like being in the presence of his mom. No activity, no food, no hug that I could give. And he longed for it. He ached for it. When's my mom coming home? When's she coming back? When she's going to be here? Those who have put their trust in Christ, been encaptured by what the end will mean, that's the feeling we have. 
We recognize there's nothing in this earth that's going to satisfy. There's nothing that's going to come into my heart and give me the satisfaction like being in the presence of Jesus. And so, Jesus, when are you going to come? When are you going to come back? When can I be face to face with you? When can I be in your presence? When can I spend eternity free from sin, free from pain, free from the burden of this life? It's the call and cry of a heart saturated in him to say there is nothing I want more than to be in the presence of Jesus. And we cry and we long and we hope and we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we know he's the only thing that can satisfy. And that's why John says, you're coming, then come. I want to be with you. And in the meantime, would you give me the grace to endure? And I love the last line, don't throw it away. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Because we need his grace now to endure until when he does return. But does your heart cry for him? Does it cry for his return? Because that's the invitation of the book of Revelation. To see how great and powerful he is and to long to be with him forever. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you. Once again, for your word. God, even my heart just feels full this morning. Thank you for just this vision that you left unsealed, that you, you've given to us to fill our minds and fill our hearts, to be captured by it, to long for that day when we will be with you in your eternal kingdom. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Our hearts ache with the pain of this world. We feel the dissatisfaction of so many things, and we long for the day when we will be in your presence and be satisfied forever. But in the meantime, would you continue to give us the grace for our journey now? Even this morning, would you just stir up our motivation and our affection to continue to be faithful, to follow you? We know the challenges we face all around us, all the time. God, we're going to worship you now, joining with the words of this book that you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. And what I want to ask God for us this morning is that as we do that, would you come and by your spirit just give us, each one of us, wherever we're at, just a little bit more of a taste of your presence. God, almost like when we're hungry and we eat a little food and it makes us desire that much more. I pray that you out of your grace, just by your spirit, you just give us more of a taste of your presence this morning, that it would stir in us even more of a desire for your kingdom to come, that it would empower us to live motivated to keep your word and to, to follow after you. Even maybe for those that don't know you there this morning, God, that you would begin to show your hand, your love for them, draw them to yourself. And I just pray as we worship, you just give us a taste of of heaven. Deep in our hearts, we would say, yeah, that's my home. That's what I was created for. That's where I want to be. That we hear your invitation and we follow it. So God, would you do that now? I just ask by your spirit that you, you would come while we worship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.